Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here is why you should watch today's show. Respite for some customers of Celsius will tell you which account holders will be getting some money back. Plus, we'll be joined live by Sergey Nazarov, co-founder of Chainlink, to discuss one of the hot topics in crypto right now, proof of reserves. I'm Jeremy Barlow. Ash Bennington is back with us. You were uh, kicking around at a conference yesterday, Ash. Where were you? Yeah, I sure was. I was at the Benzinga Future of Crypto conference. Uh, obviously, a lot of fun to go out and meet people. And I think we've got some uh, interesting new guests who I uh, met yesterday who are going to be coming on the show shortly. Awesome, man. How was how was the sentiment there? What were people saying? How are they feeling? Uh, you know, overwhelmingly, the sentiment was on building, uh, which is uh, which is generally the case. It's uh, you know the the conference was probably smaller than what we saw in, for example, in uh, in November of 2021 in terms of the number of attendees. Uh, but the people who are in this space right now, in fact, the people I'm sure who are watching this show are people who are committed to the cause of digital assets, who are passionate about decentralization, uh, who are passionate about all the things that uh, that we talk about here on this show, Jeremy. Awesome. Good to hear it. Before we get into things today, as always, if you're watching us on the Real Vision website, thank you for that. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out, realvision.com forward slash crypto. There is a ton of great crypto and macro content there for you to enjoy. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell so you don't miss when we go live. Let's start things off and jump right into some price action. And frankly, still not much action to ponder. Bitcoin has barely moved in the past 24 hours and in the past week for that matter. Bitcoin's sitting at $17,000 and not budging one way or another. Is it a little bit more lively over on the Ethereum side, Ash? Not really, Jeremy. A slightly bigger move over the past 24 hours in Ether. Percentage terms for Bitcoin, but nothing major. Uh, we could be basically range-bound. Uh, Ether is trading right now at 1,250, so it's uh, it's more of the same. Thank you for that, Ash. One other token we're looking at today is Link, the native token of Chainlink, of course. Uh, it is up today, but down some 10% on a trailing seven-day basis. Chainlink introducing staking of the Link coin on Tuesday. As I mentioned, we'll be joined by Chainlink co-founder Sergey Nazarov shortly. Let's jump into our top stories of the day. To start, there is some good news for users of the bankrupt crypto lender Celsius Network. A U.S. bankruptcy judge has ruled that some customers should receive their deposits back. Unfortunately, this only applies to a limited number of accounts. Ash, this is good news, but it does come with some big caveats. How much are we talking about? Well, as you say, Jeremy, unfortunately, this only applies to a small number of uh, Celsius users. It's a small victory, I guess. Here are the prerequisites. Uh, you have to have had a non-interest bearing custody account. Your funds were not commingled with other Celsius assets, and your account was too small for Celsius to seek clawback uh, to repay other customers. According to Celsius's official creditors committee, we're talking about $50 million here. Uh, when Celsius filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, just to put the scale of this into context, uh, it reported $4.3 billion in assets against $5.5 billion in liability. So obviously it gives you a sense of the scale of the $50 million uh, that these customers are be getting back. Uh, most of it's owed to its customers, so the ruling is really a drop in the bucket, I think it's fair to say. Uh, the judge in this case is still weighing questions over ownership over several other types of accounts at Celsius. Uh, this include the so-called 
earn and withhold accounts. You know, so big picture here, uh, what the judge is saying is if you were a depositor who had uh, essentially no interest uh, and no no expectation of receiving interest, no expectation of participating uh, in an earn type program, you're going to get that money back. But again, unfortunately for Celsius users out there uh, who may be listening to this, uh, a relatively small proportion, Jeremy. Thanks for that, Ash. Another story that we are following today surrounds Gary Gensler, the chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. He's come under a lot of criticism from many in the crypto space lately for his approach to crypto regulation. They see the SEC's actions as combative and expansive. In other words, regulation by enforcement. It appears, Ash, that he's happy to continue with this course. Yeah, I don't know that I can I'd characterize it exactly that way. I, I would just, you know, we stick really close to the facts here. In an interview with Yahoo Finance, Chairman Gensler uh, said he's not expecting any new powers from uh, the new Congress. He did say it would be good for his agency to get more money uh, and additional reach outside of U.S. borders, however. Uh, Gensler's message for crypto companies is pretty simple and it's remained pretty consistent. The rules are there. Follow them. Uh, let me just read the quote. Uh, There's nothing incompatible uh, about our securities laws and crypto, close quote. You know, obviously, that's the, the chairman's opinion. There are others in the space who would argue the converse, uh, particularly on some nuances where the two, meaning cryptocurrency and digital assets, uh, seem to differ materially for technical and structural reasons. Uh, Chair Gensler went on to say, the runway is getting shorter for non-compliant crypto firms. Uh, what Gensler won't comment on specifically is FTX and his meetings uh, with former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, Jeremy. Very interesting. Thanks, Ash. So Gensler did mention the SEC's recent triumph in a case against Library, which he called a very big win for his agency. One other securities law compliance case that lots of people are following is obviously the SEC versus Ripple. We'll speak to crypto lawyer John Deaton on Monday about that. But going back to Gary Gensler, Ash, I saw that he's facing increased scrutiny from U.S. lawmakers. Yeah, I guess that's probably not surprising. Uh, a Democratic congressman is calling for an investigation into SEC's failure to prevent the FTX collapse. Representative Richie Torres uh, wants the Government Accountability Office, also known as the GAO, uh, to get involved. Torres is calling for an independent review of the SEC's actions or lack of action around FTX. Decrypt calls Torres's letter, quote, strongly worded, close quote. Here's a quote from it. If the SEC has the authority, Mr. Gensler claims, why did he fail to uncover the largest crypto Ponzi scheme in US history? One cannot have it both ways, asserting authority while avoiding accountability. Uh, Torres goes on to say, Gensler's quote is, quote, singularly irresponsible, excuse me, singularly, let me rephrase that. Torres goes on to say that Gensler is, quote, singularly responsible for the regulatory failures surrounding the collapse of FTX. So obviously, uh, I think it's fair to say very strong words there. Uh, it's important to point out that the SEC has been investigating FTX for some time. No civil charges by SEC have been announced yet. Again, uh, SEC is in the civil enforcement business. FTX is also under investigation by CFTC, another civil investigation, uh, and the Department, the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, which is a criminal investigation, according to reporting uh, on the matter from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Look, it's important to point out it's Washington. Everything is political. Uh, Richie Torres is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That's the most left-leaning side of the Democratic Party. Uh, there are 99 members of that caucus in the House and one senator, Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, so there is definitely a political element of this. Uh, and you can sort of interpret or read the tea leaves uh, as you like in terms of the 
the relative political alignment uh, and the uh, the desire uh, to hear uh, and seek more regulation here in the digital asset slash cryptocurrency space, Jeremy. Yeah, certainly. And speaking of FTX, the plot continues to thicken. The New York Times reports that federal prosecutors are investigating Sam Bankman-Fried in connection to the Terry USD and Luna collapse. There, these are the two sister tokens that imploded earlier in the year, causing significant uh, turmoil in the crypto market. U.S. Prosecu prosecutors, excuse me, in Manhattan are examining the possibility that SBF manipulated the prices of Terra and Luna to benefit FTX and Alameda. Ash, what do you make of this? Well, you know, the the investigation is is still in its early stages, and it's it's not clear whether prosecutors have determined uh, any wrongdoing by Mr. Bankman-Fried uh, or when uh, they began looking at the Terra slash uh, Terra USD and and Luna trades. Look, I, I think that it's 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 important to think about this holistically. Obviously, this is uh, we see the challenges uh, that that led uh, to FTX or that immediately preceded FTX. Obviously, uh, those of uh, folks out there who are watching Real Vision, who are watching the show, already know all about this. Uh, but clearly, uh, the Terra Luna collapse, the Three Arrows Capital collapse, uh, seems to have uh, at least some important bearing in terms of the context for what we saw with FTX. Uh, and that's a question that's going to continue to be investigated. Uh, it seems appropriate for them to be looking at it. But, you know, again, I read that New York Times article this morning. It is very early. Uh, it's, it seems based on the reporting that I read, based on the tone, having read these stories for, you know, God knows how many uh, years now, uh, that this is uh, that this is very early. But it, it sounds like, based on the reporting, at least in my interpretation, uh, that uh, they want to look at this holistically and take a look at what the antecedents were and whether or not uh, there was some input or uh, or sort of causal link uh, there. That's something that we're going to have to wait, unfortunately, to find out. But it certainly seems like that's the direction that they're going, Jeremy. Yeah, the story just can continues to get wilder by the minute. There has been a bit of a back and forth between SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, and Maxine Waters. Uh, there has been an ongoing will he or won't he as to whether SBF will attend next week's congressional hearings. He indicated on Twitter that he wouldn't. And now Maxine Waters, the Democratic chair of the House Financial Services Committee, has said a subpoena for SBF is still on the table. So, uh, you know, we will continue to cover this as it unfolds. But let's get into our. Let me just read again, real quick, if if you wouldn't yeah. mind the direct the direct quote from the New York Times, because the investigation quote the investigation is in its early stages, and it's not clear whether prosecutors have determined any wrongdoing by Mr. Bankman Fried, uh, or when they began looking at Terra USD uh, and Luna trades. Uh, close quote. That's from the New York Times. You know, the interesting thing about this to me is, and it, it's sort of something that I was thinking about earlier. Uh, the implication may be here another interpretation on that uh, that the Terra and USD. Uh, in Terra USD Luna investigation may have actually begun earlier, meaning it may have begun prior to the collapse uh, of FTX. And so they may have already had ongoing investigations. That's the interesting thing uh, about, uh, you know, the way investigations work. They're often not announced. Uh, very often investigative agencies, whether it's criminal at, uh, at DOJ or one of the civil investigative uh, bodies here in the United States, may have already been looking into it. So uh, that's the direct quote. Uh, infer from it what you wish. And uh, obviously it's something that we're going to continue to cover here on this show. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, most definitely we will be covering it on this show. Uh, let's bring in our guest now. As you all know, Sergey Nazarov is the co-founder of Chainlink. Welcome to the show, Sergey. How are you today? Doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Pleasure to have you. Ash, please take it away. Sergey, it's great to have you back on the show. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, where we are right now. Obviously, the big story that we've been talking about here for weeks is FTX. Uh, and what's interesting about this is it sort of it dovetails very nicely with some of the conversations that you and I have discussed many times uh, before some of the core issues here, particularly around decentralization uh, and what some of the technological mechanisms are that are in place uh, that we might be using and might be seeing and hearing more of in the future to prevent uh, these types of issues. Sergey, let me just ask you right off the bat, big picture, what's your take here? What happened at FTX? What went wrong? And what might be done to prevent it in the future? So I, I think this is a, a, an example of what cryptographic truth could have avoided. So this is this this whole situation is a result of one piece of truth, one piece of information, namely the balance sheet of FTX, right. becoming suddenly known to a large amount of users of FTX. Right. So there's basically a piece of information that many people made an assumption about, and that assumption wasn't right. And when they found out, they engaged in a bank run. And they basically engaged in a bank run um, at an inopportune time for the platform, right? So, so how could something like this have been solved? Well, it's actually really easy to solve. You, you just create transparency, right? The, the, the problem is that um, FTX was more of a traditional financial markets right. uh, organization and not as much of a um, blockchain-based DeFi-like transparent thing. And now all of the exchanges want to become a blockchain-like transparent thing. And, and so how, how, would, how would they do that? They, they would implement proof of reserves, which would prove their balance sheet. It wouldn't necessarily prove every single thing that relates to their solvency, but it would prove enough to avoid um, this exact same situation. So let's imagine that FTX was completely transparent about its balance sheet from day uh, day one, and then in day and in day one the balance sheet was made up of all cash, and so everyone was comfortable. All the users said, "Okay, I'm comfortable. You're all cash." And then FTX decided to change the composition of the balance sheet from all cash to partly Bitcoin, and then everyone was like, "Okay, I, I like Bitcoin. I'm still comfortable." But then on the third day they decide to do Bitcoin and FTT token, their own token. And they make 20% of the balance sheet FTT token, right? Because their users, the user deposits are growing and they need a larger balance sheet, right? Um, well, then everyone could have made the decision to not be an FTX user. And they could have gone to FTX and said, you know, if your balance sheet is made up of your own token, I don't want to be a user because I don't feel safe. And FTX would have been faced with a very simple choice. It could have just said, okay, I get it. I'm not going to put FTT on my balance sheet. I'm going to back your deposits with cash or Bitcoin only. And then that's how they would have continued. Or they could have said, you know what? That's your problem. I'm not going to change my balance sheet. Um, if you don't like me having FTT on the balance sheet, then don't be a user. 
and then a certain portion of the users would have left and a certain portion would have stayed. But very importantly, the portion that would have stayed would know the balance sheet. So there, right. there, there would really be a situation where you could surprise them with this information right. because they would have proactively already known it. So what, what this is really about is the traditional financial markets problems making their way into the crypto industry and not being solved by blockchain technology. Right. Now that they've happened, everyone is very eager to solve them using blockchain technology, which makes sense because this entire industry understands the concept of cryptographic truth and proof. And it's right. an obvious solution because they're already aware of, of this concept of proving things with the cryptography. Right. Well, you know, this is is so interesting and it's so important to talk about because I don't think, you know, we make this distinction between those of us who are inside the space versus those of us who are outside the space. And it's so interesting to me because the the sort of the subtle nuance that you uh, sort of discussed right there, uh, I think has been sort of lost outside the space, quite frankly. Um, if you read how this story is playing out in the, in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, uh, the answers that you get is, well, it's another crypto failure. Of course, this is a problem that's uh, that's plagued crypto. But Precisely to your point, and the argument that I've been making is that you know these are challenges that have, uh, in many ways, nothing to do with crypto. These are these are classic problems that we've seen in the organization and structure of financial services companies uh, for hundreds of years. It looks like the 1907 bankers' panic, for example. Francis Coppola wrote this piece about that at the beginning of November, prior to the FTX uh, implosion. And so it's it's very interesting to see uh, how the you know externally people who are outside the space are kind of blaming. Well, it's just another crypto failure. Uh, but the reality is, I think it was Vance from Framework Ventures who said uh, a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried could have owned a chain of laundromats and been playing the same kind of financial games that he was uh, playing with FTX, in his view. Uh, and, and I think it's it's an interesting sort of question to 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 try to explore. But let's talk for people uh, who are interested in hearing that next level of detail down on the technological side. So when you talk about proof of reserves, you talk about things like uh, the be ability to verify things, uh, not with uh, the trust of individuals or with third parties, but using the laws of math and physics to verify uh, the state of play or truth in a particular circumstance. Talk a little bit about what that means, how you think about it, and how you understand proof of reserves from a mechanical construction side on the blockchain. Sure, so, so there's a general uh, principle we have here where cryptographic truth is superior to paper trust, basically. And, and that's, that, that's a good fundamental principle. And then the simplest version of that is truth over trust, which is just a concept that we have internally and that we've shared more and more externally. Proof of reserves is a type of truth that, that gets turned into a cryptographic truth when you apply encryption and cryptography, in this case, in the form of Oracle networks. So, so basically, Oracle networks can take a piece of information and they can validate it using cryptography to prove that it's true. And that's when something becomes a cryptographic truth. And that's why proof of reserves is very attractive because um, the first word is proof, right? And proof is a common um, common term in the encryption and cryptography world that you have various proofs, cryptographic proofs, and it's a very fundamental idea. So when 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 we say proof of reserve, what people should really think about is like cryptographic proof of reserve. So, Sergey, walk us through a, a simple stylized example of what that means and how it might work in practice. For example, uh, if I claim that I own 100 Bitcoin, 
Uh, how could I prove cryptographically that that was the case via an Oracle network? So, so Bitcoin's really simple because you have another cryptographic uh, truth system, the Bitcoin blockchain, that we can rely on, and it's public by nature. So as long as you can prove your address with proof of reserves, we can verify block to block how much Bitcoin is in that address. And this is actually how a lot of wrapped um, Bitcoin things work, where we can, and, and proof of reserves is used for a lot of wrapped tokens, exactly in the way I just described, where we can prove that the, that the native asset on the originating chain is locked up. And by proving that it's locked up in that originating chain, when you make a wrapped asset, proof of reserves can act as a check. So you can't make more wrapped assets then there are native assets, right? If, if you use proof of reserves to guarantee a wrapped asset. So not only can we prove that, that you own Bitcoin because we basically use an Oracle network to read from a certain chain and to validate that you know, your ownership is at a predefined threshold, but that proof of reserves for your um, Bitcoin can then be a, a condition for creating wrapped Bitcoin. So, for example, if we wanted to make ash-wrapped Bitcoin from, from your Bitcoin holdings, people could be assured with proof of reserves that we can only ever have as much ash-wrapped Bitcoin as there is in ash's specific Bitcoin addresses. And, and the, the proof of reserve system would guarantee that there's an accurate um, source of cryptographic information, cryptographic truth about that. So when you're validating on-chain assets, it's actually in certain ways simpler. The real challenge for proof of reserves now is, is actually validating multiple off-chain assets. And then the other challenge is how far proof of reserves goes right. versus other things like proof of liabilities, proof of solvency, proof of others. Yeah. But um, yeah. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, we, talk, we were talking about that a little bit offline, that the construction, there's proof of X, because proof of reserve uh, in itself may not be enough. Talk a little bit about the way you think about uh, proof of liabilities, uh, proof of assets, and how those get interconnected, particularly when some of those assets are held off-chain. You know, for example, if I claim to have $100 million in U.S. Treasuries, U.S. Treasuries are not on-chain assets. How do you verify it? How do you validate it cryptographically on-chain using an Oracle network? Sure. So there's two ways to, to validate it. One way is you could go directly to the custodian that holds your assets. And the important thing for people to understand is that the custodian is separate from the entity it's doing custody for. So right. if the entity that, that, that's using a custodian went to the custodian and tried to get them to manipulate the data, that would be a pretty, pretty crazy situation where the vast majority of custodians would drop them as a customer. And because probably they also, and, and probably also a criminal act as well. 
Right. It would it would it would be very weird. The custodians wouldn't go along with it. So so that is a trust assumption uh, as an example. But let's say that we understand that custodians of off-chain assets and the entity that owns the assets legally are two separate entities. Well, one way is you, you get access to the APIs of the custodian, and that custodian can be a gold vault. It could be a bank account. It could be any number of things. And then you proactively ping that um, vault um, API or that bank account API, and you track what's going on in that custodian's holdings for that specific account or that specific gold vault, and then you return that on chain. And, and we do that for multiple gold coins and uh, stable coins and various other real world asset backed coins. And, and we've actually been doing that on production for over two years. One of the first users of Chainlink's proof of reserves was actually wrapped Bitcoin, the, the largest wrapped coin implementation there is. And, 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 and basically, whether it's on-chain or off-chain, what, what you're doing is you're getting data and you're proving it. So the, 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 the first way with off-chain is directly to the custodian, directly to the gold vault, directly to the bank, directly to the place that has the assets, which once again is, is a separate entity from the legal owner of the assets. And the custodian's right. entire business is holding things and being honest about what it's holding. The, the, the second way is, is that you can use an auditing firm that basically goes and audits a bunch of separate bank accounts. And then that auditing firm generates an API and that API gets validated and represented on chain. In this case, you're not trusting the custodian, you're trusting the auditing firm, but the auditing firm is also making very, very specific commitments. And those commitments are not happening on an annual audit basis. Like that's um, that's actually the problem. In the, in the fraud world, this is called uh, the gap problem. So mm -hmm. the gap problem is the period of time that you have to commit fraud. So if I verify something about you once a year, the gap problem is a year. And within that year, a lot of wacky stuff can happen. If I, however, I validate something about you every 10 seconds, then the gap problem is 10 seconds. And, and so when it comes to off-chain, you, you have the custodians and you have the auditors that are more technically inclined to provide APIs. And, and the, the real decision that I see there for people is often how complex is it to build the custody API-based one, right? So if you have a bunch of accounts across a bunch of places, maybe someone uses an auditor to make the tracking of all that value simpler for them. If, however, you only have one or two custodians and those custodians have high quality APIs to pull the data, then um, you, you're probably um, in a simpler place going directly to the custodians. And, and so what... No, I was just going to say, and of course, the, the two propositions are not logically exclusive. You can use auditors and custodians. Both can have APIs uh, that you can pull data off of that could be inputs uh, into an Oracle network. But I wanted to talk about what some of the risks here were and some of the things that I know that you uh, probably spend a great deal of your time thinking about in terms of trust. 
you know, it's interesting that if you look at the uh, the list of the the top custody banks in the U.S., there there are basically four of them. It's 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 Bank of New York Mellon, which is the largest, uh, State Street, J.P. Morgan, and Citigroup. Or there, I think those are the uh, the only four banks that have tens of trillions of dollars uh, in assets uh, that under custody. And then you conversely you look at uh, the accounting firms here in the United States. There are, as we know, the big four: uh, Deloitte, E&Y, KPMG, and PwC, the large accounting firms. You know, as you said, trust is essentially their business. Um, that is uh, that is effectively why people go to them. Those names are uh, something that carries weight. If I tell someone that I have a hundred million dollars uh, under custody at uh, at uh, at you know J.P. Morgan or Bank of New York Mellon, that's something that can be verified. So there's a high degree of trust in those entities. But what are some of the challenges that might arise over that? I'm thinking of of two uh, right off the top of my head, and I'm curious about how you think about them and how you attempt to compensate for them. You know, first uh, would be something uh, like uh, a man in the middle attack uh, on the API so that you could have a, a bad actor, a malicious actor, for example, who might uh, want to manipulate assets for one reason or another to go short or long a particular security. And the second uh, is the potential for rogue actors in companies uh, to do things uh, that may not necessarily be, in fact, that would not be in the best interest of the company as a whole uh, for financial gain. How do you think about some of those challenges? And are there other risks that you also think about in terms of addressing? Right. So, so there, there, there are a number of risks here. Just, just to be super clear, one, one of the biggest risks is that people don't misunderstand what a proof of reserves implementation is proving to them, because hmm. there's only a certain degree of things that are getting proven to them, such as there's this many assets in this type of account at this institution. That that doesn't say anything about the liabilities. It doesn't say right. anything of the company. It doesn't say about a lot of things. So there's this so, whole. So just to break this down for people, so they they understand it, people who may not have accounting backgrounds. So you have assets on one side of the balance sheet. You have liabilities on the other. So you're saying essentially, Sergey, if I'm understanding you correctly, that if you prove that you have uh, X number of assets, uh, if you don't have proof of liabilities, you're not proving uh, that the assets and liabilities are aligned or in balance in a way uh, that people who are doing business with the company might be comfortable with. Yeah, you're, you're not proving solvency, right? So so when it comes to FTX, um, I think people were concerned about solvency, but the thing that yes. triggered the whole thing was the balance sheet and the balance sheet's composition. So the main, the main thing that everyone got upset about and started doing a bank run about was the composition of the balance sheet, right? right? It, it, it wasn't clear what the liabilities was. It was just, oh, wow, a lot of the balance sheet is FTT token. I didn't know that. I'm going to get my money out. And, and that created a cascading set of events that resulted in, in, in this situation with, with FTX. So in the FTX case, proof of reserves would have solved that problem because everybody would know from the beginning what the balance sheet is. So they, they wouldn't have a situation where they're really surprised and they're, and they're kind of deciding to do a bank run and all simultaneously withdrawing their, their funds. So that's, that's, one, that's, that's one great example of proof of reserves being very useful for mitigating that specific risk of what are the assets? What is the balance sheet, right? So, so that makes sense. Now, there, there's obviously these other risks that you discussed, which, which are people manipulating information. So that's the type of risk that I think people should take into account. If you have a single data source, not multiple data sources, then you're exposed to the risk of that single data source being manipulated. And then you, you, you have to ask yourself, okay, there's proof of reserves about custody in this place. How good is this place? How secure is that place? 
How much do I trust that place to do real custody and real security and avoid the problems you described, whether that's insider threat or whether that's man in the middle, um, you know, packet injection, whatever it is, right? So, so the, 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 the real question here is, what is the real setup for proof of reserves? And, and I think what people should consider is, what is getting proven to me and what isn't getting proven to me? Right. What do I know about the, the, the things getting proven? So are the assets, do I know what bank the assets are at? Do I know the type of account that it is? Right. Is, is the proof of reserves implementation checking the account every second, every day, every hour? Our proof of reserves implementations have a feature that does 2% threshold changes. So if the, the account balance changes by a certain percentage, there should be an automatic update for some of the proof of reserves instances. And so proof of reserves is like any other tool. It's a configurable tool that needs to be configured correctly for the purposes that people want to get from it. And so proof of reserves can be configured to prove a lot about the reserves and the balance sheet and the assets of a particular counterparty. And I, I think it's a fantastic tool because not only can get it get adopted by, for example, someone like FTX, but it can actually get adopted by all the people who are now experiencing systemic financial risk from FTX. And users can decide if they want to use those applications based on their exposure to where their balance sheet resides. So you could even prove things like, I have this asset in my balance sheet, but this asset in my balance sheet is over here in this place. And so your exposure is not just to this asset, your exposure is also to this custodian or counterparty. For example, if there's some kind of CFI crypto lending thing that holds 90% of its assets with some other CFI crypto lending thing. So not only do you know the composition of the assets, you know that they're held in this other thing over here, right? So, so where, where all of this is going in, in a way that does harden and improve our industry, and which we're at the center of because we've had proof of reserves working for over two years on production, powering some of the top stable coins and gold coins and a lot of the other top um, DeFi and CeFi things out there, is that everyone is realizing that truth over trust is real. It's not a nice concept. It's not an idea. It's a very real, very tangible, very useful risk management tool. And, and, and the concept of truth over trust or cryptographic truth over paper promises is, is, is very clearly um, defined here in the form of proof of reserves. But, but my very, very um, strong feeling is that there's going to be many more pieces of cryptographic truth, such as liabilities, various measures of solvency, proof of you know, selling an asset. There's a whole, there's a whole world of proof of X. That, that provides very similar value to proof of reserves that people simply haven't woken up to yet because there hasn't been an event that makes them worried about managing a risk. But we, we are actively developing those, working on those, and I have a very strong feeling that both in the crypto world and in the traditional financial system, proving things will be an increasingly critical aspect yes. for people deciding to deal with a counterparty. So, so that's the positive outcome of this is, is people are realizing that risk management through cryptographic truth and things like proof of reserves is not like a nice idea. It's the new minimum.
It's the standard that everyone needs to meet. And that yeah. holistically is better for our industry because it makes our, our industry uniquely more uh, cryptographically proven. Yeah, a couple of side points here uh, that I think are pro probably important to make. Uh, you know, it's not just the quantitative uh, aspect of it, but there's also a qualitative aspect. In the case of FTX, we've been talking about FTT here, uh, but there are also some other uh, so-called SAM coins uh, that were being held on the balance sheet here. I'm talking about Serum especially, but also Oxygen, uh, Maps, and Bonefita. Uh, these were other uh, these were other coins that were spun up either by FTX or Alameda or some combination uh, thereof. And second, uh, for people who are thinking about the uh, the burden that this places additionally on users, it's also possible that we could have layers of interpretation there. So it's not just that users would be responsible uh, for understanding all of the on-chain data themselves. It would be that there would be uh, third-party entities who could look at that data and say, hey, by the way, you know, if you have you know, essentially uh, the equivalent of, uh, of analysts who are looking at this, who are very experienced looking at it and saying, hey, I see something that's moving here. I saw this Oracle change and I'm concerned about it. Uh, and it's a mechanism to, uh, you know, essentially disseminate that information uh, more broadly and to bring in uh, expert analysis as well as empowering users on their own uh, to look at that data. Sergey, what I'm curious about uh, is understanding where we are right now in terms of the current state of play uh, with the technology uh, for, you know, the, the, the so-called proof of X that we've been talking about here. First, of course, proof of reserves, which is has uh, you uh, say has been running up uh, for about two years right now on the Oracle network, but also uh, with regard to proof of proof of assets, proof of liabilities, proof of solvency, more general. Where are we right now uh, in terms of the operational nature of it? Is this something that's running on the network itself? How is it being connected to the external APIs, and is that system yet? Uh, in in a way, ready for production uh, to start guarding uh, against these types of issues in the future. Sure. So so the way we view it is that it's just another type of data. It's just another type of cryptographic truth. The, this year, uh, the Chainlink network has uh, enabled six point six trillion dollars worth of worth of transactional value. A lot of that has been through market data, but but there's other types of data. And, and one of those categories is this proof of reserves category and proof of, of various other things categories. I, I think the way that this is going to develop is frankly based on what users want to see and what users want to know. And we, for example, have a badge um, that people can put on their application and their site to show that they have been verified by proof of reserves. And this badge reminds me of the badges that I've seen from like e-commerce websites back in the early 2000s, where people knew that something was verified or their credit card number was secured somehow through Norton or something else like that, right? So the, the reality of what proof of X develops next is, is a consumer dependent question because the reasons that proof of reserves are getting adopted is that all the consumer focused applications want to prove something about themselves to consumers because consumers have realized this risk and this risk management issue. So if consumers realize that the risk management issue they're concerned with is not just assets, but also liabilities, well, then right. proof of liabilities is something that we're going to heavily accelerate. And then if they realize that what they really care about is proof of solvency with a certain level, then that's what will get accelerated. We we have a lot of other type of stuff that isn't called proof of X. Like we don't have we don't call it proof of identity, but we we have many solutions in the Chainlink network about proving people's identity in order to allow them to comply with regulations and still use various great on-chain right. financial products. 
So, so Sergey, I'm, tomorrow... I'm mindful of the fact that we're about to run over time here, uh, but I wanted to ask you, here we are uh, in December, obviously 2023 right around the corner. What do you foresee happening next year in terms of the implementation? What's on your roadmap? What do you foresee happening next? And what's the general trajectory that you see in this space for 2023? There's three categories of, of what Chainlink and the Chainlink network is doing now. One is around data, which we just briefly discussed. There's a lot of market data innovation we're doing around low latency data for derivatives. There's identity data, which I think will be attracted, attractive for regulated DeFi, and I think will happen at some point. And then there's proof of X data. Proof of reserves, proof of assets, proof of liabilities, proof of this, proof of that. So those are the three main categories in data that we're more concretely exploring and, and moving forward. On the compute side, there's automation, random numbers, and a number of other things. And on cross-chain, there's something called CCIP, which is very exciting both for the crypto world and for the traditional banking sector, which has a very uh, an increasingly large interest in moving assets across multiple bank chains, which we're getting increasingly involved in through the high quality security of CCIP. That's cross-chain interoperability protocol, something that's running right now on the Chainlink network. Uh, just to be super clear, it's, it's, not, it's not fully running right now. It's, it's a very security sensitive thing because there's been so many bridge hacks. So it's not fully live right now, we're still working on it. And the reason we're still working on it is because we're trying to get the security right because it's relatively simple to spin up a bridge or, or a messaging bus between chains, but it's pretty complicated to keep all that value and information secure. Exactly, so, as we've seen with all the bridge hacks, as you mentioned, uh, over the past uh, 12 months or so. Right, right. So our, our goal is to create these really secure systems, and, and that's why the Chainlink Oracle Network has powered $6.6 .6 trillion in transactions this year. It's not, it's not because we rush in and just, just hope, to, hope it works. We, we do a lot of auditing, a lot of validation, a lot of security review, and CCIP is still under some amount of design and security review. So, so that's where that stands. I think that just like Oracle networks that deliver data to power over $6 trillion in transactions are very, very important because the data is a critical attack vector. Cross-chain yeah. communications and movements will also depend on security. Yeah. So what's, what's, what's coming next for us is to make sure that the data quality keeps improving with low latency, the proof of reserves, proof of other things um, aspect of Chainlink continues to develop. Identity-related data, I think, um, has a real chance of gaining real adoption in the coming year, and so we have real interest in that. Mm. Um, then there is cross-chain, and then there is certain amounts of computation, and, and really what all this results in is, is a larger, more cohesive platform mm. where people can build really advanced smart contracts, such as DeFi. So, so that's the, the, the vision we're trying to really realize more and more in the coming year. Sergey, I could talk to you for the next three hours about all of this, but I want to bring Jeremy Varlow back in uh, for his take. Jeremy. It's a fascinating conversation, and if you guys did choose to speak for three more hours, I would certainly be on the line listening. That was fascinating. Uh, I do have a few key takeaways. In the interest of time, I'll try and keep them brief, but we covered today uh, that Celsius uh, may be providing funds back to some of their customers. Of course, Ash mentioned some of the caveats, those with non-interest-bearing custody accounts and funds that were not commingled with other Celsius assets. We also discussed Gary Gensler's message to crypto companies that the runway was getting shorter for non-compliant firms and the obvious backlash from those in the crypto space, arguing that there are nuances uh, where crypto and securities laws do differ. 
And then lastly, uh, from our interview just now with Sergey, uh, we continue to mention that these uh, issues in the crypto space are traditional finance problems that have crept their way into crypto. Uh, these are not crypto failures. They are failures of centralized finance. And Sergey mentioned that cryptographic truth and transparency can capably solve those issues. Uh, I particularly liked uh, the statement and the ethos over at Chainlink that cryptographic truth over paper trust or just shortened truth over trust. I would like to conclude by going to Sergey if you have any final takeaways uh, for us today. Yeah, I, I think that the takeaway that I have is, I mean, I've been in this industry for over 10 years. And so I've seen a lot of booms and busts. I've seen a lot of ups and downs. And some of those ups and downs don't really result in anything anything positive because they're based heavily on speculative stuff. This up and down from, from FTX is, is not great. I don't think it paints things in a positive light. But when I look at what's happening in terms of the demand for proof of reserves from Chainlink, and I look at the real adoption of this as the new minimum for proving things to users, I do think that this um, event will create a realization in our industry about how risk management should work. And I think that realization will, will fundamentally harden our industry the same way that open source cryptocurrencies are hardened by you know, more specific smaller attacks. And that hardening has a lot of value because all of that hardening of our industry and what it provides is not happening in the traditional financial system. And so eventually through enough of these kind of hiccups and bugs and issues in the industry's design as a whole, we will arrive at a hardened, transparent, reliable, user controllable, immune from various manipulation financial system. And I think that that will have massive impact on, on the developed markets and it will have even larger impact on the emerging markets. And so while, while this isn't like the brightest um, you know, paragraph in, in the book of what's happening in the blockchain world, I think there is a silver lining where it is going to harden and improve how our industry works. And all of those things add up. So I, I, I am seeing this, this uh, realization around proof of reserves, and I think it's going to become a net positive over time as one additional key feature of why our industry provides this hardened, reliable method of, of conducting financial transactions and financial relationships. Right. Listen, I'm going to keep mine real short here uh, because I think Sergey covered the mechanics of this very well. I just want to zoom the camera out, give you a little bit of big picture. Uh, the, for me, the bottom line, uh, what we've been talking about here in relation to the FTX collapse uh, is not inherently a crypto problem. In fact, I would argue that it's the opposite of a decentralized problem. It's a centralization problem. It's what happens uh, when you have highly centralized uh, actors, uh, frankly, uh, in some senses, a kind of cult of personality uh, around a, a very charismatic leader uh, who lots of folks gave lots of money to, uh, operating effectively offshore in a highly unregulated environment. Uh, this is not a challenge that's inherent to crypto. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. I think that some of the conversations we've discussed here today, not an endorsement of any one protocol, but the conversation that we've talked about today here with Sergey uh, is this idea of true decentralization, cryptographic truth, truth based on math and physics rather than on trust of individuals. Uh, I think that's an important point. I think when we have this conversation here, Jeremy, uh, in 20. 33, not 2023. These are precisely the issues we're going to be talking about. This is the future. Uh, and that's why we think this conversation uh, is so important. And I just wanted to thank uh, Sergey again for joining us here today. 
Thank you for having me. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Always really enjoy our conversations. Uh, thank you for diving into this uh, important issue with me. Thank you. Thank you again, Sergey. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you, Ash. Always a pleasure doing the show with you. That is it for today. Don't forget to subscribe. Real Vision Crypto is free. Head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto. For those of you watching on YouTube, you know the drill. Smash the likes, notification bells, all that good stuff. Join us again tomorrow. Ryan Berkman's Ethereum investor and community member will be with us live. That should be a good one. See you at noon Eastern time, 5 p.m. London, live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Oh!